Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Professor Peter Singer has been called the world's most influential living philosopher. He's often credited with starting the modern animal rights movement and with the influence that his writing has had on the development of effective altruism. He's also known for his often controversial critique of the sanctity of life ethics in bioethics. Professor Peter Singer is the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics in the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University. Since 2005, he's combined this position with that of Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. He's also the co-founder of The Life You Can Save, a non-profit devoted to spreading his ideas about why we should be doing much more to improve the lives of people living in extreme poverty. In 2009, Peter Singer wrote his book, The Life You Can Save, to show that our current response to world poverty is not only insufficient, but ethically indefensible. In the 10th anniversary edition, released in late 2019, Peter brings his landmark work up to date. In addition to restating his compelling arguments about how we should respond to extreme poverty, he examines the progress we are making and recounts how the first edition transformed the lives of both readers and the people they helped. Our reporter, Steve Grimwade, caught up with Peter Singer via Skype from New York. For the most part, we'll focus on the reissue of your book, uh, The Life You Can Save. But first, I wanted to begin in a slightly obscure place. Um, What did your parents do and how did they model what work could be for you? Well, my my father was uh, uh, an importer of uh, coffee and (coughs) tea and uh, a rather small business that he ran. Uh, And I would not say that he modeled a good way to work because he always seemed stressed. He always seemed worried that... um, his customers might not pay him and then he would be losing a lot of money. Uh, and I, I don't think he really enjoyed his work. I think he enjoyed the holidays and periods when he could relax. He enjoyed being with a family, but the work was just a means to an end. Uh, my mother was a, was a physician, um, so she worked part-time uh, at least you know, once, once uh, my sister and I were around. She, she didn't work full-time, but she did enjoy her work. She uh, you know, would talk to us occasionally about patients that she'd seen and the kinds of issues she talked about. She had a particular interest in in psychological medicine, although she was not qualified as a psychiatrist or or psychotherapist. But um, she obviously was giving psychological counsel to to some of the uh, people that she saw, and and that was interesting. So in a way, perhaps she was more of an example of of how to live and do meaningful work than my father was. What was it then that led you to study philosophy both at uh, Melbourne and Oxford? Well, it was really quite accidental, I have to say. Um, I applied to do law at at Melbourne and was accepted for law. And part of the process was that you went to talk to an advisor or counsellor. And the counsellor I saw, who was uh, a rather young Sandy Clark, he eventually became dean of the faculty of law, um, he looked at my academic record and uh, you know, my results at matriculation and saw that I'd done well in uh, literature and history and said that I might find law a bit dry and uh, had I thought about combining a law with an arts degree. And I hadn't really thought about that, but it did sound quite interesting. Uh, so I decided to do that. And then the other accident that occurred was that 
my sister, who's older than me, had a boyfriend who'd studied some philosophy, and I talked to him a bit about philosophy. I knew nothing about philosophy. It wasn't taught in high schools then. Um, I did know about history, and I enjoyed history, so history was one of the art subjects I was going to enroll in, but for something different, I decided to give philosophy a try, and here I am today. You did I never finished the law degree, by the way. You know, I, I, I completed the arts degree and then got a scholarship to go on and do a master's uh, and suspended the law degree, but I think probably you can't suspend for 50 years or whatever it's been now, so that's it for law. I think we're better off for that. Um, I'm interested in the, the temper of philosophy at the time. Uh, you said that you were at the right place at the right time when philosophy was becoming more practical how was philosophy changing at that time? Well, you have to see this against the background of uh, how it had been during the uh, 50s and right up into the certainly the mid-60s, where philosophy, English language philosophy, was dominated by uh, what was known as the ordinary language philosophy or linguistic analysis. Uh, philosophers were basically concerned to analyze the meanings of words uh, so that if you're doing ethics, for instance, you were likely to be discussing what we mean when we say you ought to do this or it's wrong to do that or something is good. But uh, philosophy was not seen as a normative enterprise. That is, it was not seen as being action guiding. Uh, so one of the leading philosophers of the time, A.J. Eyre, uh, actually wrote that um, some people are disappointed with philosophy because they come to it looking for guidance. But that's a mistake. Um, giving guidance is, is the role of the preacher, he said. And philosophers are not preachers. They do this analysis of the meanings of moral terms, which is neutral in terms of, of what, you, what you ought to do. So that was, it was against that background that the student movement of the later 60s, the protests against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement in the United States, um, led to students demanding more relevance from their courses in general, whatever those courses might be. And in terms of philosophy, the obvious place to respond to those demands for relevance at the time was to look at the big moral issues of the day, uh, to look at, for example, was the war in Vietnam a just war? Well, what is a just war? Uh, philosophers and theologians have talked about the idea of a just war back as far as Thomas Aquinas in, in the Middle Ages. Or you could look at, at the civil rights movement, uh, demanding equality for people irrespective of their race. What's the basis of equality? Um, what are the justifications for departing from equality in some respects? That was another clearly relevant philosophical issue. So those things were just starting to show their head at the time when I came to Oxford as a graduate student. Uh, and uh, I wanted to write my thesis on the question of civil disobedience. Is, is civil disobedience justifiable in a democracy? And obviously the civil disobedience had been important not only in Martin Luther King's civil rights movement, but also during the protests against the Vietnam War. So this was something that it wasn't clear, at least initially, that the university was going to approve because it was really rather different from how moral philosophy had been understood. But uh, uh, they did approve it, and uh, you know I got some helpful supervision from uh, Professor R. M. Hare, who was a professor of moral philosophy there. Uh, and I think that's an indication that philosophy was already starting to change in that way. I think philosophy was far from neutral for you. I mean, you've also written that um, 
discussion is not enough. What is the point of relating philosophy to the public and personal affairs if we don't take the conclusions seriously? Um, how has philosophy tested and changed your own values? Mm, um, well, the first important change in my values that philosophy led to uh, was it got me to think about the moral status of animals, um, which was not a topic that I'd really ever thought about until I came to Oxford and here I was, 24 years old, a graduate student. Uh, I'd never thought about whether it was okay to eat meat. Um, that wasn't a topic anyone talked about. You really virtually never met a vegetarian. If you did, that person was probably a Hindu or maybe they thought that meat was bad for their health. But I'd certainly ne never met anybody who said, no, we shouldn't eat animals because animals have a moral status that makes it wrong for us to treat them the way we do treat them and, and, and kill them for meat. Uh, so, you know, coming up again, a chance conversation with a uh, fellow graduate student led me to think about that issue and start reading about it. Uh, and pretty soon when I got into this, I thought, hmm, this, this is not good. It doesn't look like it, it, it's possible to justify the way we're treating animals at the moment. So I, I talked to my wife about that. I, I was married before we came to Oxford and uh, uh, we decided to stop eating them. So there was one very big change that philosophy had already made in our lives. Uh, and that led us to think about other issues, including what should we as reasonably comfortably off people in an affluent society be, be doing to help people in great need, perhaps uh, starving or uh, without the basics of, of life uh, in, in developing countries. Uh, and so around that time, we also started tithing, giving 10% of our income to, at that stage, it went to Oxfam, which was the major organization that we were familiar with working for uh, to help people in extreme poverty. Only a year after you'd finished your Bachelor of Philosophy at Oxford, you wrote an essay called Famine, Affluence and Morality. Uh, can you tell us uh, about this essay and what drove you to write it? The, uh, there were, in a way, two quite different uh, stimuli for writing that essay. Uh, one was uh, an invitation from one of the professors at the college where I was uh, then teaching, uh, Professor Ronald Walken, who's a very famous professor of, of jurisprudence um, uh, and was a member of the board of a, a new journal that was being started, a new philosophy journal called Philosophy and Public Affairs. Um, and again, you know, going back to what I said before, that was a, an innovation that philosophy might have something to say about public affairs. So he was on the board and he'd been asked to solicit papers and uh, he spoke to me and said, you know, is there anything that you might be interested in contributing? Uh, and around that, so that was the one uh, stimulus. And the other was the fact that around this time, there was this crisis in uh, what is now Bangladesh, but was then East Pakistan. Uh, there was an autonomy movement in East Pakistan. It wanted to become autonomous from the other part of Pakistan, which was across the other side of India, the, the part that is still called Pakistan. And uh, this, this autonomy movement was brutally crushed by the Pakistani army, so brutally that nine million people fled across the border into India. They became refugees in India. Uh, and this was an immense crisis. Uh, India was uh, a much poorer nation than it is now. Um, it was struggling to cope with 9 million people in need of food and sanitation and shelter. It appealed for help to wealthier nations, and, and some help was given. Um, Oxfam certainly started soliciting for donations, and the government gave a bit, but very little in compared to other priorities. So 
I thought this is an issue that I should write about. Uh, as I said, we were already tithing. Um, and I thought, well, really, we do have an obligation to do something substantial, not just to throw a few pennies in a tin when it's rattled under our nose, but to really think about how much we ought to be giving to help people in such great need. I believe that uh, this essay really is the uh, is the foregrounds the book, The Life You Can Save, um, as does the, the thought experiment of the girl in the pond. And I'm, I'm sorry to ask you to do this, but do you mind relating it to listeners? You're strolling across a park uh, in which there's a pond. It's a shallow pond. You know that in summer you've seen kids playing in it. But there's nobody else in it now, um, except then as you walk, you notice there's something splashing in the pond. And you look more closely, and it's a child, but it's a much smaller child than the ones who've played in the pond. It, this child is too small to stand up and seems to be in great danger of drowning. You look around, you'd expect, obviously, that there'd be parents or a babysitter, someone looking after the child, but you just can't see anyone. You don't know how the child got into the pond, but it's going to be up to you to save the child. Nobody else is around. But then you have this less noble thought that, unfortunately, you've just put on your very best shoes and good clothes, and if you jump into the pond, they're likely to get ruined, and you'll be up for some significant expense in, in replacing them. Now, at this point, I, I ask you to pause and think, Suppose that you didn't save the child. Suppose that you were thinking of the expense you'd be up to and you decided to forget that you'd ever seen the child and just walk on, leaving the child almost certainly to drown. Uh, would that be okay? Would that be something that was all right to do? Fortunately, most people, when you ask this question, I've often asked it to audiences to raise their hands, they say, no, that would not be okay. That would be a, a terrible thing to do, to put a pair of shoes above a life of a child, you, you can't do that. So then having got to that result, I ask people to think about their own situation right now with regard to people who are dying in low-income countries because in some cases they don't get enough to eat. More commonly nowadays, maybe they get diseases that, that kill them like uh, malaria, which is preventable, uh, or measles, or perhaps they don't have safe drinking water, so their children get diarrhea and, and die from that. There are, there are a number of preventable, cheaply preventable causes uh, that children die from. And according to UNICEF, um, something like 5.3 million children are dying each year. Most of those deaths, these are children under five, most of these deaths are uh, from preventable causes. So if you've got money to spare to spend on nice clothes or expensive shoes, um, but you could give it to an organization that would save the life of one of these children, are you really all that different from the person who doesn't save the child in the pond because they don't want to ruin their shoes? I can you know, easily feel that there's a psychological difference because you don't see the child in front of you, but uh, think about it. Is there is there really a moral difference between those two? And, and if so, what is it exactly? So what is it about human nature that potentially separates our thinking and our intuition? Like, I mean, the fact that we can philosophically understand that there is no moral difference. However, we try to establish some other difference in our, in our minds or in our hearts or in some part of ourselves. Uh, I think of it this way. Um, we are evolved animals, evolved social mammals. Uh, that means that for millions of years, our ancestors, human ancestors and other primate ancestors before we separated out... Um, lived in small social groups, uh, had to care for our children. If we didn't care for our children, they wouldn't survive and we wouldn't pass on our genes. Um, 
had to also participate in the social group, support others in the group in, in need, build relationships, reciprocal relationships, which might help us in times of need with, with others. Uh, and so all of that gave rise to some basic instincts to help people. So, you know, you see the child in the pond, you have this instinct to help this small, helpless, non-threatening human being. But that is pretty much at the instinctive level, and it leads to feelings of empathy or compassion, perhaps, um, and, and to a strong urge to help uh, the helpless. If, however, the people we need to help are far away, if we can't see them, and if, in fact, we can't even identify exactly who we're helping, then those emotional impulses just don't come into play. Our rational faculties, which, of course, is what I'm appealing to now and your listeners in this discussion are thinking about the ideas that I'm putting forward. So they are responding at the level of reasoning. And that's when I ask them to say, you know, what's the difference between these two cases, the child in the pond, the, the child dying of malaria in another country. I'm asking people to think and reason about it. And I think if we do that, uh, we can see that the cases are at least close, not identical, but, but in important respects, close. But that doesn't mean that the moral impulse just follows on that rational judgment that they're close um, and I think that's why it's it's still hard even when you go through this process it's still hard for people to feel it in the same way and in terms of motivation that makes it perhaps somewhat less likely not at all impossible but somewhat less likely that people will be moved to act. I suspect uh, your life's work is the answer to this question, but um, you've written that evolution has no moral direction. Um, what are the ways we can increase our moral evolution? Is it possible to increase empathy in society in various ways? I've argued that we can expand the circle of, of moral concern and that that's an important thing to do. So this is really this idea of expanding it beyond the social group that we're part of. Um, which, as I say, used to be quite a small social group, maybe 50, 100, 150 people in, in the kind of tribal groups that uh, early humans lived in. We've expanded that considerably. Um, we've expanded it to include, I guess, our fellow citizens, to some extent anyway, or even if we don't really think about them to quite the same way that we think about uh, immediate family or friends. But I think we need to expand it further than that. I think, for example, we, we need to expand it to all human beings. Uh, most people would agree with that, again, at least at a theoretical level. I also think, as I said before, that we need to push beyond the barrier of our species and recognize that non-human animals are capable of feeling pain, at least uh, many of them are, uh, and that their pain matters and that the fact that they're not human beings is not a reason for ignoring their pain or, for that matter, ignoring the possibilities that they can enjoy their lives. And I also think we ought to extend this circle not just from the present, from people who are alive now, but into the future, which has, of course, become a, a much more critical issue with climate change, with our awareness of what we're doing to the planet and what we're doing to the planet not only right now, although, of course, I know if you're in Australia particularly, I guess if you're in New South Wales, um, you feel that what we're doing to the planet right now is really terrible. But uh, what, are, what we're doing to the planet for the next 50, 100, 200 years, uh, these changes we're making in, in the absence of any miracle technology to soak up the carbon out of the atmosphere, um, these changes will have a very long-lasting effect. And, 
and a negative effect. So we also need to expand the circle in, in the direction of the future. Um, how can your original thesis on civil disobedience sort of impact our support uh, for groups like Extinction Rebellion? Uh, that's an interesting question. I, I have actually come back to that. I just uh, taught a course at Princeton on practical ethics, and I, I, I've been talking about climate change in this course for a few years. But this year, for the first time, I introduced the idea of, of civil disobedience uh, in the context of climate change. And... Uh, you know, one of the things I said to the students, of course, I'm very old compared to the students. I'm old enough to remember the Vietnam War, as I said, and to have written about it, which uh, for them is history. But I said, you know, that there were huge protests uh, in relation to the Vietnam War. Um, I was involved in them in, in Melbourne. Uh, 20,000, 40,000, 50,000 or more people out in the streets blocking the, the traffic, protesting the war. And I've been surprised that uh, although climate change is in many ways a, a, a bigger issue, will affect more people in the long run than that uh, war affected, although the war, of course, had a big effect on, on millions of people in Vietnam. But there has been very limited civil disobedience on that. Uh, and that, again, may be something to do with the nature of the change, with the fact that we don't see the victims in the same way that we got those horrific pictures of for example, the naked child uh, who'd been uh, burnt with napalm running through the streets in a city in Vietnam. Uh, so, you know, the lack of that kind of dramatic cause and effect relationship, I think, maybe has made less civil disobedience than there otherwise would have been. But I, I think it's, I think it's, it's quite justifiable. I think it's pretty clear that what uh, our leaders are doing is wrong, that it's uh, short-sighted, that it fails to take into account the interests both of people in the poorer parts of the world who are less able to defend themselves against uh, climate change and also those future generations. Uh, uh, and I think given that um, civil, and I, I stress civil disobedience, I'm talking about nonviolent civil breaches of the law um, and also breaches where the protesters accept the penalty of the law as Martin Luther King and Gandhi did and, and use the occasion of any trial to make their point of view clear and to show their sincerity and their commitment. Um, I believe that that kind of civil disobedience is justifiable in the context of climate change. I'm going to return back to uh, the life you can save and going back to psychology, I'm interested to hear from you how psychology is offering insights on how we can best nudge people's propensity to give. Psychology is uh, starting to test uh, what it is that leads people to give. Um, that's one interesting uh, area of study. And it's also doing research into the effect of giving on people's well-being. Uh, so these are two interesting areas. Uh, in terms of the first, uh, a lot of the research has suggested that emotional appeals will do better than rational appeals. That goes back to what I was talking about earlier. And uh, particularly, people will give more if there's an identifiable individual, even if they don't see this individual, if they're just told, for example, your donation will help. And then you give someone's name and you say, uh, she's nine years old and she lives in Malawi. People are more likely to help to donate than if you just say, there are nine, there are many children in Malawi who go to bed hungry, you can help them. Um, so that's one interesting, interesting fact, and to me a somewhat depressing fact, of course, uh, because I'd like to be able to use more reasoning appeals. So there, there is ongoing work. I've been involved in some research into trying to use rational appeals and really see whether there's a particular segment of the population that they work better in. Uh, that's, that's one set of questions. 
but then the other point that I, I do often mention in my um, writing and public speaking about this issue is that there is strong evidence that people who are generous, who help others, who think about the well-being of others, actually um, enjoy their lives more than, than those who are more narrowly self-interested. Um, the, the people who are more altruistic, more outgoing, uh, find their lives more fulfilling, they're more satisfied, uh, they have a meaning and a purpose that sometimes other people lack. And it, it's pretty clear that this is not simply a correlation, but that there is really the cause of, of giving to others actually takes you out of yourself, gives you this meaning and purpose, and maybe makes you less anxious about bad things happening to you because you know that uh, there are a lot of people who are going to be worse off than you. I guess one of the effects you've had in this in this area is the work of effective altruism and the rigor that we bring to research. Um, where is the best research into assessing interventions happening? Uh, it's happening uh, in uh, non-profit organizations like uh, GiveWell um, and Impact Matters. Uh, they're organizations that do this kind of research. They are going out into the field and looking at the impact on the ground of particular aid projects and where possible they're comparing that with places where these aid projects, are, these interventions are not taking place. So they get a, a, a real comparison and they can see what difference the aid intervention is making. Uh, it's quite expensive uh, research to do. Obviously, you need skilled people out there talking to people in the villages and um, making measurements and assessing what's going on. But the research gets gathered uh, in a few places online. So there is an organization that sprung out of the first edition of, of my book, The Life You Can Save. It's, it's called The Life You Can Save. And there is an Australian branch of that uh, you can find online at thelifeyoucansave.org.au. And, and they put together a lot of this research and you can find a list of recommended charities based on that uh, research. And incidentally, if you give through The Life You Can Save, for Australians, these are tax-deductible donations. Uh, in the United States, there's an organisation called GiveWell, which uh, does some of this research, and uh, it's it's a valuable source of information too. What's most impressive about the book, or not most impressive, but another aspect is the fact that you actually outline the most effective interventions uh, that your money uh, can achieve or can assist with. Perhaps you can mention a few of those here? Yes, uh, there are quite a few organizations that um, you know many different things can do a simple sort of thing is you can donate to the against malaria foundation which uh, will use that money to distribute bed nets in places where malaria is prevalent uh, malaria is a, is a pretty bad disease i actually had malaria myself many years ago when i went to new guinea i felt dreadful for a while and it came back a couple of times too but you know, I had good medical treatment and I survived, obviously. Um, but children particularly often don't survive malaria, especially if they're not really well nourished and they don't get the drugs that they need. So malaria is a killer and you can save children's lives as well as preventing many, many more cases of illness by donating to the Against Malaria Foundation. Uh, another rather different sort of organization is something called Village Enterprise. Uh, Village Enterprise goes into uh, villages. They're working in uh, East Africa mainly. Uh, they go into villages and uh, they offer both an asset and some training. Now, the asset might be uh, cash or it might be something like uh, chickens. Uh, and the training is about using the asset to start a small business. So there's a period of training. 
Uh, in addition, once the training is over, there's, there's mentoring. There's somebody that people can go to if they have problems. And uh, when Village Enterprise goes into a village, they also organize, help people to organize themselves into a group so that they can support each other. Um, they may support each other with loans to get through tough times, or they may support each other just in a, with, with moral and social support. So that's also been uh, tested pretty carefully, and it has been shown that uh, in a whole range of different countries, not just in East Africa, where, but in other countries where it's been tried, it does help leave people better off. It, it helps them to get out of poverty. And also, I think we should note at this point that uh, you had some wonderful, wonderful success in retaining or... Uh, getting the rights to your book back and the people can actually uh, download an electronic copy of The Life You Can Save for free from that website, um, which is a, a, an amazing thing to be able to do. It is. It's it's wonderful. And as far as particularly as the Australian and New Zealand rights are concerned, I want to thank uh, Text Publishing, who were the publishers of the uh, original edition 10 years ago. Uh, and they simply donated the rights back to me so that I could pass them on to the organization, The Life You Can Save. So thankful to them. Uh, the book is available for free as an ebook and as an audio book. Uh, and I hope lots of people will download it. And by the way, if you do want to listen to the audio book, you will find uh, that, that we got some celebrities who also donated their time to read chapters. Uh, the uh, actress Kristen Bell uh, from Frozen and from the TV series The Good Place reads one. Paul Simon, uh, the great singer-songwriter, um, who's somebody I, I know got to know personally since being in the US, uh, reads another chapter. Uh, other people from The Good Place, Mike Schur and Mark Evan Jackson, are reading. Stephen Fry, who uh, you know people may know as a actor, a comedian, uh, may hear him on the BBC, uh, he reads in his beautiful English accent. I read a chapter in my Australian accent. Uh, we have an Indian actress, Shabana Azmi, uh, reading, and we have an East African woman, Winnie Alma, reading. So it's kind of a, a, a global range of, of accents of people reading English, uh, which is very suitable for a, a global project. You have a very eclectic group of friends. <laughs> yes, they're not all my personal friends. They're sometimes friends of friends or contacts. Um, but uh, yes, some of them are, are personal friends. It's great. Is campaigning for philanthropy more effective or important than campaigning for greater government aid? I think you can do both. I certainly am dismayed by the level that Australian government aid has fallen to. I think last time I checked it was about 0.22 or 21 perhaps even uh, percent, which means uh, for every $100 uh, the nation earns, uh, 21 cents are going to foreign aid. That's miserable. Um, it's miserable even by comparison with other countries who I don't think any Australians would think of as, as wealthier than Australia. The United Kingdom, for example. Many Australians visit the United Kingdom. Do they think, oh, wow, this country is three times as wealthy as Australia? Nobody thinks that. But uh, the United Kingdom is giving three times as much aid uh, in proportion to its national income as Australia is. Uh, and I think we ought to be ashamed of that. So, yes, we ought to be active citizens. We ought to support parties that uh, will restore foreign aid to something at least like, you know, it, it was, it used to be higher than it is now. And I think it should be like the United Kingdom's uh, at least 0.7%, which is what the United Nations has recommended many years ago, which a few nations have met. So, yeah, let's, let's do that. But let's not feel, oh, when we've done that, we've done everything we can and there's nothing more we can do because we can give ourselves as well. And I think it's, it's important to do that and show that we want that aid to go. 
as well as supporting those political parties that will restore foreign aid. People may think of philosophers as idealistic, but you're incredibly pragmatic as well. Um, So in the book, you don't ask us to give everything away. Rather, you've established quite realistic targets. Um, How did you come about that approach and those figures? Uh, I suppose when I was younger and in the article you mentioned a while back, Family, Affluence and Morality, I I did have much more demanding levels. Um, But I realized that there were very few people who were going to respond to a a highly demanding uh, requirement. So um, I thought for a while about just calling, asking people to tithe, to give 10% of, of their income. But really that's you know, that's quite a lot for people who don't have very much and, and rather too little for people who have more. And I thought we should have a progressive scale like the income tax scale. The more you earn, um, the higher the percentage of your income you can afford to pay in income tax and the higher the percentage you can afford to donate. So I, I started looking at figures which I thought would not impose a real hardship on anyone because they start much lower than 10%, they start at 1%, but then as people earn more, they rise and they do then go above 10%, um, they go up to 33%, a third of people's income for, for those people who are very wealthy, who are you know really earning in the millions. Um, so it's no hardship for them to give a third of that. And then I, when I got all those figures, I looked at the number of people, uh, the US publishers figures for how many people there are in each of these income ranges for, for tax purposes. So you could calculate how much would be raised if people gave the suggested amounts. And I was really surprised when I added that up, just how much this is, you know, that the amount that the affluent people of the world could give without serious hardship is many times, at least five times, um, the amount of foreign aid that all the governments of the world give. So so this would be a, a huge resource that if we applied it effectively, would dramatically reduce extreme poverty, would dramatically reduce the number of children dying before their fifth birthday, uh, would enable, for example, every elderly person in the world who develops cataracts to uh, to have those cataracts removed, which of course all Australians can do under our, under our health service, but uh, there are millions of people in the world who are blind because they have cataracts and they can't afford uh, the treatment to get them removed. So, you know, there's, there's such a lot that we could do if people would only give at the, as I say, I think reasonably modest levels that I'm suggesting. Timing is everything. Should we take time to develop a better understanding of what our own strengths are and how we can grow them to maximize our utility for all? Or should we be fighting on the front lines of crises straight away? No, I think it's worth reflecting. Um, After all, you're going to spend a long time in your career. So if people are at the stage where they're choosing a career, it's it's been calculated that we spend about 80,000 hours typically over our lifetimes working in our career. So if you're going to spend 80,000 hours, um, you know, it's certainly worth spending 1% of that, uh, 800 hours, you would think, thinking about your career. But nobody does that. That's that's a lot of hours, really. Um, but you would think it would, would be worth it. Um, so anyway, stopping to think for a lot more than people do, not just going on in some sort of preordained path uh, because some school counsellor sort of did a test and said, oh, you'd be good at this or that. Um, but really think about about how you can have a fulfilling life and, and do good at the same time. Uh, and there is a website which, not coincidentally, is named 80,000 Hours, 80,000hours.org, uh, where you can find a lot of information on a variety of, of possible careers that can be both fulfilling for you and um, 
making a positive difference in the world. Is there any advice that you'd uh, give to your students on what it means to be a philosopher? <laughs> um, so the advice that I would give is is uh, philosophy is, is an interesting thing to study and, and it's also uh, something that can benefit you even if you don't become a philosopher because there are you know, a few opportunities for philosophers in, in, in the world today and, and the competition for jobs when they open up is really intense, much more intense than it was when I was looking for a job in the early 1970s. Uh, so don't go into philosophy initially thinking I'm going to make a career and be a philosopher. Think uh, I'm going to learn to think in various ways and that'll be useful in whatever occupation I'm in but it'll also be useful in thinking about my life and making life decisions about the, the path that I want to go in. Um, because these are, you know, philosophers study big questions. Socrates said, you know, the important question is, is how, how I ought to live. Uh, and he said the unexamined life is not worth living. So uh, examine your life. Think about the path you're going in. And philosophy can help you with those questions. Finally, uh, the next time I get a windfall... What would you like me to think? I would like you to think that there are people who need the windfall that you've got uh, a lot more than you do. You know, it's it's nice to have it. I'm sure there are some things that you can think of to in, that you'd enjoy and distribute to other people in your family and, and people you care about. But uh, save uh, a significant part of it for people who just don't have the things that pretty much every Australian does. I know we have people in poverty, we have homeless people, but Australians do have things that we take for granted, uh, like safe drinking water, we have health care, we have free education for our children, and we have some social security so that uh, you know, you're not really in danger of, of starving or anything like that. Whereas in other countries of the world, that's not so. So think about helping some of those people with your windfall as well as enjoying a bit of it yourself. Professor Singer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been really good talking with you. Thank you to Peter Singer, Ira W. DeCamp, Professor of Bioethics in the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter, Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on December 18, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.